0: Well, thanks everyone. Um, you know, thank you for coming. Um, so, I, I was a senior engineer at LinkedIn from 2010 till around uh, 2016. Um, I, I got to see LinkedIn change in many ways in terms of the engineering and you know the company as a whole. Um, you know, I I I, um, I wanted to focus this talk on the engineering aspect of the company and what I saw in terms of changes from you know early till I guess uh, post IPO 2016 ish when the company, you know when we are a serious number of users 500 million plus um, it's kind of hard to distill you know over 6 years when you kind of work on something it's hard to distill just a few points and make slides around them so and it's it's kind of boring too so i thought i'll keep this like more of a more of a story i'll talk about what i've seen since like the beginning and you know how linkedin evolved and we can kind of distill some things from there and you know people can hopefully get some questions uh, out of this so uh, to begin, I have this video that I uh, found a while ago. It was by, uh, created by Yan. Uh, Yan was like one of the earliest engineers at LinkedIn, like maybe engineer one or two. Or, and uh, this is him uh, on the anniversary of LinkedIn recently, building the first build of LinkedIn on his laptop and just like running it. So uh, for the technical among you, LinkedIn was uh, for a long time, and it still is, is a, is a Java-based platform, everything, you know, end services are mostly Java. Back then it was really uh, old school, it was like Java beans and like a database running off his laptop, and I thought it'd just be interesting to kind of start there. Jean-Luc was another uh, engineer who became CTO later. Yan is actually a musician now, electronic musician, so there's actually a good track to this, but it's not plain. So all of it, like you know, the cloud, the search, stats, I mean fancy names were just one service, what they call the monolith per se. And you know, you think of LinkedIn, it's this giant thing, it does so much, at one point it was just a guy running it off his laptop, a uh, you know, couple of commands, and there you see, it's finally deploying the web app. And You can actually hear the track in the background, I guess. I don't know how to increase the volume. And hopefully his browser should Well, uh, LinkedIn, so uh, you know I think they use the blink tag too so yeah so uh, you know it's it's interesting that uh, LinkedIn had had a core mission around building like this massive graph that connects everyone in the world and uh, they could have started with the more uh, um, uh, more complex architecture or something but they decided to keep things simple back then because they didn't know which way the company would go which way the product would go and startups are really about that they're not about um, honestly I, I think a startup is a company the day it's found its product market and uh, fit and it knows what it has to do and it has to repeat and kind of scale that one thing up but uh, you're a startup while you're still discovering what that thing is and how how, how you're gonna get from zero to you know uh, to your goal um, so uh, sorry, I'm just trying. To... This was LinkedIn's uh, earliest infrastructure. It was um, one Java server and one database. The database was Oracle. LinkedIn was actually paying licenses for it, uh, and that was uh, LinkedIn's uh, old campus in 2010 when I moved there. Uh, very no- you know, LinkedIn was. Uh, Not one of those super fancy companies back then with, uh, you know, the the free food and everything. It was relatively conservative and focused on its mission and everyone was motivated by that mission. So, over the years, LinkedIn, um, as engineering grew, people started to take uh, different chunks and they realized this was was what was slowing the system down. For example, Leo was like this main server, actually is named after a guy, Leo. But um, yeah, and, um, and uh, it just like, all it did was it got its data and everything, your profiles, your passwords, everything was that one big database. And uh, then LinkedIn decided we needed this graph. You needed all these connections and that's what we needed to do. And um, th- that wasn't easy. You had to like, um, you know, even at a few, uh, few million users, there was a lot of load on the database. So they decided they had to like, build something else for it. And that's the first time LinkedIn decided to um, adopt what now is pop- uh, called um, uh, microservices. But essentially it's not even that. It's just, it's just extracting a service out and, and because it is not working as part of the whole idea. So uh, LinkedIn decided to um, build a graph and they had to actually build this kind of weird database relay thing and replicate its database and that's like, it started adding complexity. Um, that's just a picture of uh, the campus. So where LinkedIn was in the Google campus Uh, It was really beautiful to go for like a lunch walk, and uh, there was just a hill nearby. Um, Over time, um, like LinkedIn, uh, as more teams joined in, there were more users, more features. Um, LinkedIn decided that uh, it was time to um, kind of extract out certain Things and hand them over to certain teams and let them focus on it. That's actually why LinkedIn adopted a more complex architecture. It was, uh, there were two reasons for that. One, you know, individually pieces could be scaled up as their need grew and uh, a team could then focus and independently focus on something and not have uh, the rest of the company kind of, you know, waiting on them or, you know, stuck behind them. So um, uh, that, that's the first time LinkedIn expanded its architecture and it uh, added something called the mid-tier. The mid-tier was the only way uh, the web application could actually talk to the database. So um, uh, like, like most, a lot of people might work with uh, here, might be familiar with Ruby on Rails, where your application just directly talks to a database. At LinkedIn, that, that front-end web app was really like the Ruby app, but it was not allowed to talk to the database. Everything that went in and out of the database was protected and managed through this specific service that talked to that specific database. So, um, and at that point, another thing started happening. There was a lot of data. So people changing passwords, people opening emails, people creating connections, just anything anyone did on um, the entire site is, uh, was considered like an event, a, a data event and, and you could throw that away but I think it's, it, it, LinkedIn realized it was valuable and every little action needs to be held onto, categorized and uh, you know, used at some point. Um, that's, that's where LinkedIn started working on this uh, thing called Kafka. And I uh, remember, this is pretty early 2011. There weren't so many services that actually, you know, today there's a lot more options. But back then, it was important that LinkedIn had to build some of these things themselves. Um, the database, you know, LinkedIn depended on, um, you, you know, we called it the source of truth and we depended on something that was credible. We didn't want, you know, any experimentation with that. So one thing I learned there is about, you know, um, what I learned there was that engineering and actually, uh, you know, is also about managing risks. It's not always about going for something fancy or shiny, you know, um, like a new NoSQL database that maybe is faster or whatever, because that, that data is valuable and that's the only place it's kept. So we wanted to choose something that's rock solid that would not require us to wake up at night and, you know, run around trying to manage the whole thing. So, um, yeah, uh, LinkedIn also decided that it, needed, that it needed other kind of data stores. So, the, while the database was the main source of truth, there were other um, needs we had. Like, uh, we would build um, giant, uh, like we would do all these computation on Hadoop, which was our distributed uh, cluster, and we needed that, the result of that computation available uh, to the website, um, you know, quickly. And uh, we decided that we needed a key value store for that. So, uh, Voldemort was LinkedIn's key value store. It's now open source. I think everyone can use it. So, that uh, was built around uh, the same time that, you know, the microservice architecture started building. Build, you know, people started building that. Um, I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Kafka, but Kafka was, uh, was a real innovation that came out of LinkedIn. It was a giant uh, uh, data bus. So everything at LinkedIn, every event, every time you open a site, you open the app, you click on something, you change something, it generates an event that event is catalogued, and it's, it's defined, and that event is it flows into what we call like um, the nervous system of like the uh, like the ner- like yeah the nervous system of LinkedIn it's called Kafka um. Uh, There's just pictures I've thrown in the middle, interesting ones. That's um, when LinkedIn actually redid its front end. Uh, it was called Project Voldemort. So LinkedIn traditionally had a jsp based front end. It was what everyone called Java server pages. It was kind of people considered it old school. And it had some other, you know, web technologies like Backbone and stuff kind of clutched together. It wasn't scaling. We LinkedIn couldn't change it fast enough. So at that point, they decided to move to uh, more client-side, uh, uh, frameworks, and uh, LinkedIn picked Ember. So Ember is uh, one of the ones, right now, that React is a super popular one, but, you know, for whatever reason we decided React, um, Ember was the best one for us. And that's when um, we launched the mobile web, the, you know, the and uh, the main website and everything. So as Jeff Wiener, CEO, kind of like uh, celebrating the launch. Kafka. Kafka was um, uh, really, everywhere at LinkedIn. If you needed to do something, all you had to do was go look up the event in, the, uh, in, our, in a nice little tool, find what event you needed to work off, and plug your application into that event. So um, if you needed to do something every time a user changes his password, you could just do it. You could go build a, a specific listener that listened to the you know, password change event, and go and send an email saying, hey, I noticed you changed your password. You know Why do you do that, or whatever. Um, Kafka required a lot of work. It was it was one of those things where LinkedIn had to invest in its infrastructure. So um, at this point, you know, it, it's it, it, it's sometimes not sensible to put a lot of money into technology that you could pick up off the shelf. But um, you know, engineering at LinkedIn spent a lot of time evaluating things that were out there, and none of them quite did what Kafka did at at scale. Uh, if I remember clearly, probably there was uh, like a. Trillion events flowing through it every day or something. Um, And that events were kind of stored in Kafka too. So if you did not get it, you could always go back seven days and get it. So it was a lot of data to manage. Um, So... uh, so, you know, over the years, LinkedIn got uh, more sophisticated. And one thing LinkedIn did in the middle was uh, dealing with technical debt. So, you know, at a company that's growing and moving fast, often people are, uh, they, they, they generate what they call technical debt. That's basically some technology that's not quite right. It's, uh, it's hurting growth in some way, but people still push through because, you know, you need products and features and, and sales needs something. you know, you need to hit a target. But at one point, LinkedIn actually decided, let's not release any new features. Let's not release any new products for a while. Let's even like maybe four or five months. And let's fix this technical debt. Without fixing this, we're gonna have all kinds of problems. For one, uh, moving ahead is slow and hard and that can cause people to lose their motivation. Um, um, You're not able to uh, innovate fast enough. Because you're, you know, you're working with old technology. It's kind of brittle, or you know, whatever the reason behind, you know, that there lies behind your debt. Um, so, LinkedIn actually decided let's take a, a pause and let's figure out what all this debt is and let's fix it. And um, part of that debt was uh, was a lot of small pieces, including how the services talk to each other. There was. Uh, for example, if you decided to search for something, uh, a request would go to a search service and that search service would send that request to hundreds of other little services. And if somewhere in the middle of that entire graph of calls something broke, you wouldn't know. So monitoring, you had to be able to track that entire thing. You had to be able to um, um, you know, have um, a better database, like you know, at some point Oracle was hitting its limits, and LinkedIn needed to, you know, be able to scale that piece to accommodate, you know, its its uh, vision of having 500 million people on the platform. The graph, the LinkedIn called uh, the cloud, wasn't quite keeping up, so that needed to be more extensible. So there was all of these like pieces, and the front end, the you know, that LinkedIn finally did change. So all of that required a massive um, effort over uh, months to kind of clean up. Uh, Additionally, uh, LinkedIn's code base was, uh, it was one big monolith. So, um, we kinda, I think we learned this from Google, but um, what uh, LinkedIn did was all of its code. Its mobile code, it's, uh, you know, every, every possible piece of code was in one repository. There were a lot of uh, advantages to that, and there were some disadvantages, so uh, we had to take a, another look at that and move certain pieces out and leave some in. Also, clean up some services, yes.
1: No question, where well, Kafka plays here on the server side, I guess. Huh? Yes, yeah, so,
0: so Kafka is a server side technology. I mean, in, this in this graph, so what we're looking here is LinkedIn's uh, new thing that it called um, Restly. This was how all the services talk to each other. So um, LinkedIn went. So the way LinkedIn worked was we had our own data uh, data centers, and all these data centers had these racks of servers, and these servers had uh, switches and routers, and and um, you had to like it was all this complexity. And every time a request had to go a load balancer. Sorry, that was another big piece of hardware everywhere. So every time you had like fifty. uh, web servers and you had to send a request to one of them, it had to hit a, another piece of hardware called a load balancer and then that load balancer would like choose, pick a server and send it there. So we wanted to get rid of all of this complexity. So LinkedIn moved to Restly, which did something called client-side load balancing. This was uh, pretty cool, I, you know, for me, I, you know, I never imagined something like this could be built. But um, every time a request had to be sent to a server, the client sending it would then talk to something called Zookeeper, figure out how many servers exist, Uh, What is the load on these servers and which is the best one I should send it to? So now this entire piece of infrastructure in the middle called a load balancer and obviously thousands of those just disappeared and the requests were way faster. Uh, Also we started gathering information about how much time these requests take, you know, which one's failing, which request then gets forwarded ahead to another server, so there's all this tracking. So, you know, this was a lot of complexity, honestly, even to, you know, code and manage and all of that, but this was way ahead in LinkedIn's life and I think we had like 2,000 engineers to throw at the problem at this uh, point of time. Um, So what did I kind of learn? That's just me grinning stupidly at my desk. Um, So um, yeah, what did I learn? I'd say craftsmanship. It's important to, you know, like there's there's a lot of talk about moving fast and breaking things and all of that, but but honestly, you know, every time you break something or you move really too fast and you're not uh, you're not uh, uh, giving enough thought to your code or writing enough tests, you're actually hurting yourself. You're slowing yourself down in the long run. So LinkedIn always promoted code craftsmanship, where you know uh, um, uh, you know be. Uh, Take ownership of your code, write it in a way that someone else working on it will not be cursing you and uh, you know and, and write it so that if you come back to it ten months down the road, um, it 's still readable. you know what you 're doing uh, it doesn 't have to be complicated don't you know don 't try to be fancy, just try to be clear and, and uh, readable um, technical debt technical debt is you know is it very often happens at companies I've seen that uh, there's a lot of pressure from product or you know uh, sales and and um, engineering does not get a chance to fix this technical debt, and you know somehow you might hit that one point, but what you don't realize you are slowing down, and there, and, and you're just slowing down. You're a lot of you know you're potentially going to lose people down the way. You're you know someone else who takes care of that technical debt might out innovate you because they're just moving a lot faster. Um, Uh, Data is everything. So, just, you know, there's a lot of times people just throw away data, but data is valuable. You should, everything that's happening within your app, you should be able to leverage it, store it, manage it. You can build products out of it. Like, LinkedIn has built several products from the data that just flows through the systems. Like, um, people you may know, a lot of that is driven by uh, interactions that happen across the site. For example, maybe someone searched for you uh, and that might you know, and and then he looked at your profile. Maybe those things are signals into the fact that you might know him. So um, you know, things. So and That that was not the only product. There were products around uh, university pages and and uh, products around who are uh, distinguished alumni at certain universities. All of those were driven by data that LinkedIn had stored over years. Um, DevOps and SRE. Actually, these guys really like you know saved my life. I I, I love SREs and DevOps. Uh, so uh, I've noticed this trend across a lot of companies where developers are—you know—you're you're the software guy. You just do everything. You got to manage the servers. You're supposed to write the code. You're supposed to deploy this. You wake up at night when the server goes down. You just everything. But LinkedIn didn't do this, honestly. It and um, everyone and all the, the whole engineering org loved the company for that. We actually had a separate DevOps or what you call uh, SRE org to uh, manage servers, make sure they're running you know, uh, handle operations, wake up at night if, uh, uh, if something goes down. I mean, they'll hate you for, you know, making the server go down, but they'll, they'll uh, protect you. Unless there is a uh, real reason for, you know, you to be engaged, you know, you will not be engaged. So, um, I, I feel this kind of separation of concern was great. It, um, it it uh, helped everything from retention. You know, I, I interviewed people. I won't take any names from other companies where they were like, you know, what I, I'm uh, I, uh, I'm underslept. I'm overworked, and um, you know, and we're forced to push out new features every day. There's a lot of technical debt, um, so everything keeps breaking. And then you know, this third time this week, I got paged at night. So that hurts. Um, empathy. So this is something that Jeff Wiener Promoted across the company from management to to product to engineering and and every you know it's not something I, it's it's you know it's a great word but not all of us have it on the top of mind every time but like at LinkedIn. Um, it was, you know, we, we, we took it seriously. We thought about um, being empathetic in terms of product. They thought about being empathetic to the user. Uh, we thought about, you know, the others in our team when we were writing code, we're making some big change, um, you know, or deliverables to someone else as a product manager. You know, we should, we, sh- we should kind of put ourselves in his shoes and see, you know, what he has to deliver and we as a team. So I, I think it made LinkedIn a better place to, a great place to work. It, uh, you know, I, from, Talking to people, I, I think it had one of the best cultures in the valley. Uh, retention was really high, people loved being there. The free food helped, but you know, this was great. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think I'll just open up to questions at this point, yeah.
1: Regarding uh, reducing chemical risk, uh, how much upfront design did you do? You did, I mean, uh you have like architects that propose a solution and you sell that
0: to developers or...? Yeah, so, so the way the org was uh, uh, organized is there was a product, and the product teams worked with business operations and the rest of the company execs, and they figured out what direction we need to go. And, or even, you know, they could even be, uh, it didn't have to be just a product feature. It could be a technical thing like, hey, you know what? Our web interface does not look good. It's not responsive enough. It's not flexible enough, and we need to do this thing. And that could be a dictum that came down from product. And you know, and then engineers would, um, the engineering org, would then get together, have their own uh, meetings on how to achieve that along with product. And uh, was your question about this, or just specifically about the front end? No, it's
1: about uh, the process in developing, yeah. I mean, Usually there are conflicts between architects and developers, yeah, Yes. But they throw in the world art, I mean artists, Yes. Uh, so there
0: is this uh, evolutionary architecture. So LinkedIn, we didn't have a title called architect. We just had uh, uh, senior engineer, engineering managers. But yes, I think what you're um, referring to is maybe just like a senior engineering team. Uh, yes, there is, uh, uh, there is some level of conflict between product and engineering, and that's everywhere. Engineers want you to, yeah, you know, want to do it right. And product always wants it done yesterday. So, um, so that has to be managed. But I think empathy helped somehow manage that a little bit.
2: Um, yes. yes? So I'm curious about the networking aspect of going from the laptop to actually sure the people using yes. application for the first time. Because especially in 2010, it wasn't just a matter of, how much balance you have on your credit card to just you know, not accept that much traffic, you have to think, can your switch handle that much packets when you plug the database in? Can you even have cables even be fast enough? You know, it could be something as stupid as someone didn't cream to the end of RJ45 carefully enough and the data yes. slows down. So what was that like? So uh, we
0: were, uh, you know, the software engineering teams were basically purely software engineering teams. So, LinkedIn had that separation of concerns. So, we didn't ever touch the databases. We never went, sorry, we never touched the hardware. We never went to the data centers. Um, initially, I know we were, uh, we, we did not have our own data centers, but over time, we actually had our own data centers.
2: So, a little bit about because I think the data center, you have to
0: figure out your band and stuff. Yeah, but like, so when I said we worked off a single database, it wasn't exactly one database, it was one database with a lot of replication. So uh, there you know, might have been one point to write it to, but it got replicated across. And that's what Kafka and stuff helped, because one change to a database triggers a Kafka event, and that kind of updates so much. Like 15 other database tables could be updated, a key value store could be updated, you know, 15 things could change. Um, in terms of like, uh, performance, at, you know, at the top level, we would measure how long a request to a service took. So if, and we would horizontally scale based on that. So if for some reason your request for new uh, connections wasn't returning fast enough, then we would, at at the top level, we wouldn't wonder where a switch or a router was overloaded or anything. We would just scale by adding a new uh, instance of the same service. So we just kind of increase. I mean, there's so much technology today to do all of this. Honestly, it feels uh, like, you know, we were reinventing some kind of, like, wheel back then, but none of the stuff existed. Now you have uh, Kubernetes, you have, you know, the clouds are far more sophisticated, you know, I, I'm i a bigger fan of Google app, uh, the Google Cloud, I've used it since, you know, early uh, 27 to build my first startup on. Um, uh, the key value stores, and everything's available, like, you know, you have, and, uh, I think if we had that, we potentially could have even moved
2: faster. You know, I So did you actually own the data centers, did you all,
0: uh them? I think initially, see, I, I don't have the exact information, but I think initially we didn't own them. So, uh, and uh, over time, we did, LinkedIn did build its own data centers. It was quite an expense, so. And I remember there was all these conversations about, why don't we just use AWS and, and, uh, I don't know, it worked out for the company, so I guess. yes. Did you work with
2: uh, data scientists?
0: Yes, so uh, that's a great question. So uh, the, I, I found this, uh, you know, this was new to me. So um, the whole data science org was, at, uh, was something I had never experienced before. And it was separate from engineering, so it was actually called data science. It was, uh, it was founded and run by a guy called DJ Patil. DJ Patil uh, went on to become, um, so he actually founded the word uh, data scientists along with Jeff Hammerbatch who started Cloudera. So, um, and he then went on to become Obama's chief data scientist. So he's quite a distinguished guy. Um, and uh, the, he, it was his, the whole org was his brainchild where, uh, yeah, everyone had to be developers, so we ex- didn't expect data science, so we expected data scientists to have a, a more inquisitive mind, uh, potentially, you know, be more research-oriented, but be a developer. So everyone had to write code. Even data science was shipping out data models and code. And and uh, that's the beauty where, you know, we talk about Kafka and separation of concern. So they didn't really have to engage anyone. Like, they, the data flowed wherever they needed it to. It could be into their Hadoop jobs. So they, could, they had their own Hadoop clusters. They could run thousands of jobs. They were like different clusters for every kind of uh, um, org need and, um, or they could run some kind of a distributed uh, storm-like thing where they could, in real time, process the data coming in and generate insights from that. And yeah? Would you be able to be able to elaborate a bit more about the internal
1: process of ZooKeeper in respect to talking to multiple clients at the same time and making the decisions?
0: So ZooKeeper is uh, essentially a synchronization service. So ZooKeeper is, uh, it's it's like when a lot of th- uh, things are going on. Like there are servers that are dying or you're coming back to life, or new servers are being added, or or, um, or someone's IP is changing, or or no matter what, something's always changing. But you need a so you need a way to get a clear picture of what's happening at that point in time, like a snapshot. So it has to be uh, instantaneous, has to be realistic. It can't like change under you. It's what they call a locked a locking service. So a zookeeper serves as that. We technically did not ever have to deal with ZooKeeper directly. ZooKeeper was, uh, I think, invented at Yahoo. Uh, But uh, it's a really popular way to synchronize different things. It provides like a directory interface that you can read and write into. And it was mostly really low-level, like our data infrastructure. So we had this oracle data infrastructure. So data infrastructure focused on (coughs) infrastructure pieces, like they built Restly, they built this new database infrastructure called coffee or uh, cappuccino, I think, I, if I remember right. And um, they're the ones who built uh, um, Kafka. Kafka, in fact, has become so popular that it's now spawned out and become its own company called uh, Confluent by you know, the founding team, Neha and Jay. And, um, so uh, the, the, the data infrastructure org actually um, was the one, they had individual services that used ZooKeeper under it. The popular one to use now out there is called ETCD. It's really popular, a lot of services, uh, it's, it's much easier to use and people tend to use it. But yeah. If you're building um, something, not like LinkedIn, but something that requires a graph database. Yes. With, with the different, like Neo4j and stuff like that, is there any recommendation, generally speaking? Um, honestly, I think it, it depends. You have to be very clear what graph queries you really want to execute. Make sure it's not like a, a, a relational database will not do, because many times a relational database does a lot, like Postgres can do a lot. I mean, unless you have really complex uh, queries, in which case I think Neo4j is probably a good option until some point, a, you know, if, if, if your idea is to scale to your millions, at some point you're going to hit a roadblock and you're going to have to figure a way to scale that. And, um, you yeah. uh, know, but, I, you know, obviously don't go out and write one from day one, so. It happens, you know, people rush to build technology, so, people love it, so. Uh, so. what do you think is the evolving role of an SRE or a DevOps engineer as we are going from virtualization to Kubernetes and containers? Interesting question. Um, you know, I, I think, like, uh, an SRE is really someone who understands a service very well, and he owns it. And uh, and when, when you, you know, I, I don't think it, when you move from virtual, so we never use virtualization. So LinkedIn, for example, had used multiple JVMs on one machine. Yeah, you could call that virtualization, but it wasn't really VMware, it was just like, you know, well, let's keep running VMs until the machine can't take any more And you could have multiple services together. And you can do that with Docker now. And, um, you know, or if you are on Kubernetes, then it potentially handles even more of that. but. Someone still needs to configure Kubernetes. Someone needs to manage that. Someone needs to make sure the the new services and the changes going out will not break something else. Uh, everything's backward compatible. When um, a new feature is being rolled out, you want to ensure that it doesn't, it's done in a way that the service is not unavailable. So SRE would own a lot of that. It um, A developer doesn't, you know, at that point, he needs to make sure his code is good, his code is solid, it does what it does, and then he works with the SRE to make sure it's, um, you know, the service is gonna continue running. He's not, um, he's not trying to be unreasonable. Like, he said, hey, I need like 300 gigs of RAM for this new thing, and the SRE's like, okay, let's think about it, you know, that we don't have that, and, and you know, that we're, we're running other stuff here, and, you know, kind of has the global picture, and um, the, the org has just expanded and uh, you know, grown into its own domain now. With you know, it's pretty deep and extensive. There's a great book on SREs by Google. Now I forget the name. I think. So. Sorry. Yeah.
2: Uh, did you say at some point you switched to OK as one of the platforms? Uh, LinkedIn did not okay. switch to Oki. Okay. Okay.
0: But, uh, you know, honestly, LinkedIn did a lot of experimentation because we had all this data. We could have built so many kind of products, right? We had hack days internally. And people always came up with interesting ideas. So let's build a carpool app. Let's, uh, let's figure out, you want to work at Google, so let's figure out the people driving down from Cupertino to Google, maybe we'll carpool you with them. And, you know, you can talk to them. So, you know, there were all these like, interesting ideas. And, and honestly, try to build it on, like, a Java stack. It's, you know, you're done with the idea, like bored halfway through.
2: So. That was kind of my like, question, I wasn't sure what the voice so was. So, LinkedIn did, long story
0: short, they did, did use Ruby, but uh, it was never really publicly out there as a service that uh, we launched in a big way. A lot of these internal features were tested, tried, but, okay, you know, LinkedIn then at some point decided, let's focus on the winners. Let's not do every little thing. And uh, so, it doubled down on their core products, and all the engineers were, you know, even with 2,000 engineers, I mean, um, you'd be surprised. We had less engineers working, uh, on things than competing companies, like we were for ads, right ad business was big and and I was part of the ads engineering team. We built a lot of the ad serving stack and um, and our the team working on it might have seemed big, but if you look at what Facebook was throwing at their ads business or or Snapchat or Google, it was five times the size. So we needed every hand on deck. Yeah, so, so my question then is,
2: uh, what is the decision process for going from a mature technology, like Java, you say it's old school, but it's mature in that it solves 90% of the problems, yep. so you can focus only on your innovation. And then going to an immature technology, where you have to reinvent basic things like login stuff that has existed from the 90s. Like, What's the decision process there? So what, what would you term immature technology? Uh, that doesn't have all the frameworks and the community and that they started and solved design patterns.
0: Yeah. No, I I would say like uh, Java, for example, did have all of that. Like we use Spring. Spring had, uh, you know, a lot of design patterns. And at some time... Point, LinkedIn just needed to build its own patterns. I mean, it wasn't one database. The login wasn't simple. For example, when you log into LinkedIn, you're not just like looking up a database and getting one like hash value and comparing it. There's like so much happening. They're like calls going out to services, figuring out is your IP or, like a, a, you know, and some attacker's IP or are you, you know, what are you doing? Which country are you logging from? Should we, you know, change your rules somehow? You know, so um, it just doesn't work at that point. You know, it's not. Um, but, you know, I think it's a good, you, I think you should find a service that gets you started, uh, you know, a framework that lets you start quickly and deliver value as fast as possible and not invent these things, personally, I mean, you know. Can
2: you talk a little bit about
1: your um, decision to move north to Canada and juxtaposition a little bit the immigration system, both down south and up here?
0: Sure, so um, after like, you know, six years there, um, I was, you know, I'm kind of naive in terms of the immigration stuff initially, at least now I'm a kind of expert going through it. But I just imagined, you know, some part down the road, I'd have more permanence and get a green card, which is a way you can continue staying there and be free and not be restricted by uh, uh, visa regulation. And um, essentially, I wanted to like spend some time with my kids. I wanted to work on startup ideas and all of that stuff. And you can't really do that on a work visa. Uh, and uh, what I figured out is that uh, for uh, certain people um, or certain populous countries, maybe it's just a long line. I mean, it takes like twenty years, and um, you know, and um, and it's not it's not going to happen that quickly. So uh, I. I started looking around, and you know, I initially moved to California from Singapore, so that was like something I considered. I had some friends who had moved away to Berlin, so you know, I talked to them. They said, "Oh, it's really cool there and everything." But um, you know, I had a lot of friends in North America. I had you know a lot of stuff here invested. So um, this friend of mine, Mark Argan, he actually uh, pointed me towards Toronto, and he said, "Oh, you know what? This is a really cool place. It's like this thing. You know, you should check it out. There's a lot happening here in tech." that kind of got me looking into it. I came down. I, I love the city. Um, you know, people in Toronto think it's expensive, but honestly, when you know, coming from California, it's it's cheap. So uh, so it was it was just it was a lot of fun. The city we loved it. We were there on TIFF and stuff, and um, we decided this is a great city for me and my kids. We moved, and um, you know, the cold. We were. I wasn't too worried. I did my college on the East Coast, so I was okay with it. Um, but that was a concern, honestly. You know, everyone I talk to about Canada just they ask me about the cold. So <laughs> I'm like, "You lived in New York. Why are you asking me about the cold?" He's like, "Yeah, but it's Canada." It's like, <laughs> "What? It's the same." So um, yeah, so it, it worked out really great for me. And I and I, you know, because we love it so much down here that you know I tend to tell my friends and tell everyone that you know asks me that you know they should come down here and join the tech community.
1: And can, you, can you talk a little bit about your experience in Waterloo and what you've seen here today and in general with your experience with Waterloo?
0: Sure, I, um, I, I know that Nabil knows everyone in Waterloo, that's for sure. So <laughs> go to him. Uh, but um, it was great. I Thank you, Nabil. Um, I, he, he introduced me to everyone here. Um, it was fantastic, like just, you know, seeing how much is going on in just like this concentrated downtown. Like, in Toronto, you wouldn't, like, you'd really have to, like, traverse the city to get things. And here, it's like, we were just, like, walking between buildings. And it was like, hey, this is Google. And that's, uh, and that's um, you know, Terminal and uh, Shopify. And, and it was definitely exciting. I think um, with the university here, you know, lots of smart kids. Uh, I know they all moved to the Valley because I interviewed, like, hundreds of them. Um, I know people are moving back. I, I know, uh, you know, I know at least two people from the Waterloo who came back, and they're go- they're now going to uh, Toronto for college again. I think they want to do a PhD or something yeah, U of T. So uh, you know, things are changing, and uh, <coughs> I, I, I think uh, Kitchener uh, Waterloo definitely has a great chance at uh, you know being one of the uh, big tech centers in North America. Because you know, I think the biggest advantage is obviously that you're outside of America. Uh, so, the, the other places in America are still governed by, you know, their regulations, so. Um, so it's either you're in California, because it's, you know, worth being there, or you're in Toronto, or Kitchener, so.
1: How easy was to navigate the change in the, the product, uh, you show the change in architecture, so you have a production product and then you come a new architecture. How you do a hot swap or you just open right or how,
0: how do just overnight? So, uh, you know, the pro- design process, we had to, like, when we were building anything at LinkedIn, you had to come up with a design document. So, before you do anything, you have to present this design document to the rest of your engineering team, not the whole team, but just your sub team and uh, there would be more seniors from the rest of the company that would come in and sit and they would ask you questions. And part of that, you would have to explain what your migration story is, if there was, and how how do you think about uh, backward compatibility. And There's so many, like for example, Kafka events, right? If you want to introduce changes to an event that's already been registered, and if you remove a field that was previously required, then now that's a problem. Like It's going to break a whole bunch of stuff in production because that was required and a lot of data has that field. So you have to, and, and when your change goes out, it's not just one, it's one machine at a time that changes. And, and potentially the rest of LinkedIn is still talking to you the, with the old language. So uh, I'm just saying you have to think about these things. You have to uh, f- write down a plan. There's no one way. There's uh, definitely different ways to, you know, go about it. But uh, essentially, uh, you know, you have a, or you have to design it in a way that it's, uh it's okay to be swapped out. So you swap out one machine at a time and, and that's all right if the request going to the other machine goes to the old code. Um, there, there's this other thing that LinkedIn uses called Lix. I, I really love this. This was my first exposure to it. It's a, it's a feature management service. Uh, now recently a friend of mine launched a startup called Split.io to do this exact thing outside. Um, So at LinkedIn, everything you did, any bit of code, I mean, well, not everything, but most features and and most changes, you put them inside this protective guard, this little code called a Lix uh, Protector. And and you basically then went and registered it with the service, and you said, okay, uh, I should be able to now turn this little bit of code on and off for a certain percentage of the users. So it's a way of getting services out. So if LinkedIn created a new thing, we wouldn't just say, okay, 500 million people, here you go, you know. They would basically say, okay, let's just test it out. Let's try it out with this little bit of people who were, in, you know, in London. Let's try two percent of the people coming from London, or five percent of the people in North America, and then uh, and then we would monitor for errors. So you'd see if there were any, like, you know, anything broken, everything working fine, and then slowly they would ramp it up. They would go from five to ten to sixty to ninety, and you know, and if there was a problem, you could roll it back, or you know, maybe something just you know went bad. Like you could sometimes put out changes that hurt monetization. Maybe you launch something that causes people to not click on ads. And uh, because, you know, maybe a thing is broken and it causes the ad screen to like disappear or get hidden or covered and I don't know. And then uh, suddenly you're losing money. You notice the ad revenue, you know, dropping off. Like you lose $10,000 in an hour and and then you need to switch that off. So uh, all our code was guarded by that and that made deployments and stuff a lot safer.
1: Have any stories of uh, crises and wars and stuff that
0: people. Well, early on, I remember deploying, so LinkedIn, like, to your previous question, getting code out was hard initially. So even though without this RESTly and this cool infrastructure that talked, without uh, load balancers and that, honestly it was a very high level of sophistication and the people who built it were people who had built this at Google and Yahoo and stuff so they knew what they were doing. But before those people were, you know, we didn't have that. And, And getting LinkedIn out required a lot of coordination. I remember would someone would be the, the, the deployment guy in charge, and he'd be like running around and screaming at everyone, and we had to make sure that the services were launched in a specific order, and, and um, we would be there till late to get this whole thing out, and you know, someone would make one mistake, and then things would be rolled back, and um, you know, and that's, that's where we, that, you know, I consider that technical debt, and over time, we took that into account and fixed all of that, and, it just became smoother and smoother. So,
1: yeah. Um, so, this kind of connects to your point of, of the percentage of users being exposed to the new features. Yes. Um, a few of these changes that you mentioned are, are really big, um, but they look like a step by step, in reality it's usually a gradual kind of a process. Um, it's one check in at a time, honestly. Yeah. So, so my question is basically. To have that in the context, do you remember any instance post-conflict yeah. in that are Where a decision has been made and then throughout this gradual process the decision was reversed. Or in other words, it was a failure in terms of decision making. So we decided to do something, use a new, let's say, framework or a tool and then somewhere in between, the sure. no, we don't want that.
0: Um. That, I mean, I, I, I don't remember like a big one, but I remember a bunch of times when we, you know, for example, we were building a new product and we have to recommend something. And then we uh, decide that, yeah, we, we go talk to data science. And they're like, yeah, we, we have a list of your uh, favorite connections based on this model we've built and we know who are the people whose profiles you look at and stuff and so we've decided these are your favorites. And, and here's an API, you can just call it and get that list of people. And we call it and we get that list of people and apparently it turns out you know, not to be your favorite or, and people are reacting. And, you know, you might not notice that just like when you're looking at it, but when you start scaling it up, even then you might have to hit like a large percentage for people to start complaining and saying, this is horribly wrong. You know, I, I blocked this guy. Why is he on that list? And, and then, you know, it's, it's a big problem because then you start getting these reports and those reports can sometimes go to execs and um, you need to kind of make sure you can turn that off or, or work with that team and fix it and so... Yes.
2: Um, On the human side of building large and growing engineering teams, um, as you think about uh, you know an engineering team of ten people versus a hundred people versus a thousand people, what do you think of, with the benefit of the experiences that you've had, as being the critical issues and how those? Key issues change as you go from one order of magnitude to the next to the next to the size of the engineering organization uh, to keep a high tempo, high energy, high productivity culture.
0: So, uh, you know, from what I saw, I feel that you should always keep your engineering team small. So, or keep your teams small. So, while your org might be two thousand engineers, try to have small, cohesive teams that can work well together, and and build. Um, and build uh, interfaces between the teams. For example, if there's a team working on uh, you know, some, some service to the, that gives you some kind of data, have them do- uh, expose an API for you to use. Have that documented, defined, tested, you know, deployed, and then, then you can just use that API as if you, you were using an API somewhere out on the web. So you, know, you, you don't have to really go in and uh, engage them at that level, then you're literally their customer. So every team is almost someone else's customer, and you know some teams are more lower down the stack, like the infrastructure teams, where you know everyone is their customer, and then there are some higher up from you that might you know need your help. So I you know and each team can be self-contained; they can have their own SREs, have their own you know set of uh, senior, junior engineers, have you know have their own engineering management and product support, and, and kind of have these like little blocks. I feel um, work really well. So.
2: What's your recommendation for the lifespan
0: of the team? Uh, what do you so, mean by lifespan? lifespan? So, having a, a team together and then blowing it up and, and, and getting them out into uh, different areas. Uh, Alan, who
2: was here last time, was talking yeah. about that at Apple. And
0: so, of- I, I, LinkedIn didn't really do that. Okay. So, I, I've known people who've been with the same team for like four or five years, six years. I, I changed, um, I personally enjoyed different things, so I changed teams more. Uh, not for the team, but more for what they were working on. So I went from, like, back-end, you know, ads engineering. I started off an API platform and building APIs that the world would use from LinkedIn. Then I went to ads and kind of worked on the ad-serving stuff. Then I I wanted to work on the front-end JavaScript stuff, so I moved to, like, the team that was changing the front-end to Ember. And... um, so um, you know, I, I think each team was different, so I learned a bunch. But, and LinkedIn was open about you changing teams. I, I, I've heard that other companies, I've, I've heard this is Microsoft, that you have to actually interview your way into each team. So, and these interviews, you know, engineering interviews, they hit or miss, I mean. You take a company, put them through the same interview process, and you're gonna only get 50% out the other end, so. Um. Do you think uh, when you left
1: LinkedIn, and, uh, system architecture was good enough to scale further or uh, there was some issue that
0: you were thinking to, to change it again? Uh, I think it was good, it was improving. In fact, LinkedIn was building a cloud on its own and uh, you know, the people who were much smarter than me decided that was the way to do it, so I, you know, I don't have clear insight into it, but at that point, you know, LinkedIn did do a lot of manual stuff. That, you know, we technically were on bare metal. And at that point we were adding virtualizations and you know a lot of the like EC2 like stuff where things would spin up automatically or something died, a new one would spin up. And um, I, you know now they have Microsoft and you know all the Azure people, so I guess you know and they're already at five hundred million, so you know, they they know what they're doing. So
1: is the architecture microservice based on Net- Netflix? They have this like, scaling yes. servers to see if the network survives.
0: Yes, so LinkedIn does, uh, that's become quite popular it's called chaos engineering where you have like something that goes out and actively hurts internal services or you have to subscribe to it and, um, but um, it does do some of that. At the same time, um, uh, microservices is like a really popular term, but I, you know, there was no definition of how small your thing had to be to be a microservice. Like LinkedIn had a service-oriented architecture. We had many services. And then there were those services called other services and they called other services, you know, and they called other services. There were certain rules that you couldn't call upwards. You couldn't call horizontal. You, you could only call downwards. And there were different compartmentalization. Maybe that uh, certain services that are all related to getting search done search, we're all together in a super block, and you couldn't just randomly call any of the services, you only could call the head, because they all were like hidden from you, so it's like a, like a different startup, you're just calling their API. So. Is yeah, the nature of the security? Uh, no, I mean, uh, security is handled, you know, the security team kind of managed it at the edges, and um, you know, I, I was not involved in the security aspect of it. Uh, but I, I don't remember, you know, ever being any... I, I remember there was a process, there was a step where, you know, if you had to go through a security review, at some point in the company we had a large enough security team to do this. So they would ask you questions around your service and they would often find things, like there was cross-site scripting or there was a bill you didn't really use, a, um, you didn't use a, a noun properly where someone could, like, technically take your button, put it on any site and steal your cookie or something. So. They were always use cases, and that's why our security review was a valuable part of, you know, getting anything out the door. So, Can we have time for more questions? sure. Uh, another thing I want to mention is that every commit at LinkedIn went to production. So if you change something from, you know, hello Vikram to hello world, and you committed it, you would it would be review boarded, where your team would then look at it and say, okay, why did you make this change? You you know, I like world better, and like, okay, great. I, I, I approve that and once this approval was given and like multiple approvals, then your code automatically went to the next step where it would be deployed, packaged and that service that your code was part of would be launched in a canary fashion. So canary is like one, like if you have 100 instances of the same service, one of them would now be running your code for a while. This is a one and the system will automatically see if the error rate from that service changed. So services don't have the zero errors; they always have errors. But like, if if like you had five errors, now suddenly you're getting fifty per minute. There's there's something wrong with your code. So uh, if that didn't happen, then your thing was promoted. You were allowed to promote it to the rest of the world. In which case, it then was deployed to production. So every single change you made went out to the whole company. So you keep that in mind.
1: How the Microsoft. Uh LinkedIn, uh, do you think uh, changed the
0: product, or uh, do you see any changes? as far as I see, no. They they're integrating with LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn has a lot of valuable data that they could expose. Um, you know, I think it was a fantastic acquisition for them. You know, I think it's gonna really help them in so many ways. You know, competing with the market against like Salesforce and stuff. So it was also the culture. I think Microsoft. Uh, wanted LinkedIn for its culture and its leadership. I wanted to bring some of the, you know, uh, absorb some of that into Microsoft. At least, that's my guess. So
1: if you can join me in uh, thanking Vikram. <laughs>